All right, you guys. Well, why don't we go ahead and start? All I can say whenever we're diving into Romans 9 is buckle up. You know? <laughs> so, buckle up. Yeah. Well, so we are going to be moving into 9, 1 through 13. And uh, before we dive in, let me pray and ask God's blessing on our time. Father, we just come before you this morning, once again, thankful that you have given us to Christ and that he has accomplished our redemption through his life, death, and resurrection, that it is finished and there's nothing we need to do but simply trust in him. We thank you for the fact that you have sealed us with your spirit until the day of redemption, that you have guaranteed our final glorification when Christ returns, that we can long for that day with great hope. And uh, we praise you for the presence of the Spirit as the very Spirit of Christ who both helps and helps us and makes us more holy. And we Thank you for his presence with us even this morning to help us understand your word and to wash us with it. And uh, Lord, we know that people come this morning with burdens or even uh, both burdens and praises. Thank you that Beverly's back and we praise you for a successful surgery and recovery. And even talking with Katrin this morning about her best friend's son who was in a terrible car accident and his life is in the balance. We Think of him and ask that you would preserve his life and be with his mother and help Katrin to uh, minister to him, to her best friend. And we just know that his life is in your hands. And we're reminded, Lord, of the sobriety of our lives in a fallen world as uh, frail people. And we're grateful for a new day and for new mercies. And we pray that you be with us, that you bless us, even today, with spiritual growth, with joy in the Lord, and that you would help us to honor you in thought, word, and deed. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, just a little bit of review and preview. The first five chapters are about Paul unpacking the gospel that he preaches, which could be summarized as unrighteous people can be saved from God's wrath by receiving the gift of justification by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 6 and 7, is he moves to talk about how those who receive the gift of justification by faith also receive other blessings, uh, including new spiritual life, by which they now serve God instead of sin. And then Romans 8, he talks about the indwelling Holy Spirit and how the Spirit not only enables us to obey God, it gives us the new spiritual life, talked about in Romans 6 and 7, but also that he is a foretaste of our resurrection life that we will receive in the new creation. And he also further cements the security of our salvation by explaining that God's past, present, and future redemptive acts are like an unbreakable chain, so that our future glorification is certain. And so that's where we left off, and today we're going to jump into Romans 9, which really, if you're familiar with the book of Romans, you know this is a major turning point in the book, where we're really going to have a whole new section of the book from Romans 9 through 11. And then there'll be one final section, Romans 12 through 16. So Romans 9 through 11, as we, as we dive into this section, Paul is addressing the problem of Jewish unbelief. In other words, he knows that there are both Jews and Gentiles in the churches of Rome, and that there is potentially this question, if he's going to preach that, you know, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile, but that it includes salvation 
That is simply through faith, apart from works of the old covenant law. Um, You know, you could see how people might begin to ask, well, Paul, you know, what about the old covenant? What about the Jews? And how do we explain that so many of God's old covenant people didn't believe in Christ and have not received the salvation that he has provided To put it another way, how could God's old covenant people, to whom the promises were originally made, Abraham, David, the prophets, how could they largely reject the Messiah and miss out on salvation? And so Paul's going to explain, beginning in these verses, that God's promises have not failed because God never gave those promises to all Israelites, but to some chosen by grace. And even as we say that, you know, we ourselves might say, okay, Paul, you're going to have to explain what you mean by that. And that's what, that's what he's going to do in this, in this uh, section. Okay. So we're going to dive in here. If someone would read Romans chapter nine, verses one through three, we'll start here. Romans nine, one through three. Someone would read those verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brother, my kinsman, according to the flesh. Okay. So let me just summarize this. Paul is solemnly declaring his deep and sincere desire to see his fellow Jews saved. Okay, that's what this, these first three verses are about. I, I mentioned this earlier. I should have just waited because I knew I was going to say it here. But Paul knew, if you think about it, here he is, a former Pharisee. But the Lord sends him out to, as a pioneer missionary, going to various Gentile places, right? And so he had primarily a ministry that was directed. Yes, he would go to the synagogues first. But then he would go also to the Gentiles and the churches that he planted would be filled with predominantly Gentiles and uh, some Jews. And his teaching about the old covenant law. I mean, you think of the book of Galatians, right? Uh, It was extremely controversial with the Jewish Christians, especially those in Jerusalem. In fact, you remember that, you know, the whole matter that led to led up to the, the council, so to speak, in Acts 15 had to do with, you know, this dispute as to whether or not Gentiles needed to be circumcised and keep the old covenant law in order to be saved. And Paul was saying, absolutely not, right? So you can see that his gospel was seriously ruffling the feathers of many Jewish Christians who didn't understand how the transition between Old Covenant and New Covenant had played out. The apostles understood Paul's gospel was not out of phase with Jesus or the apostles, but there were many Jewish Christians who did not understand. And so he knew that. He knew his teaching, his ministry to the Gentiles, his teaching about the Old Covenant law had made many people think that he didn't care about his fellow Jews. And so most likely Paul wrote, chapters 9 through 11, to address this wrong view, both of his own teaching and wrong view on the part of many Jews about this transition between from Old Covenant to New Covenant. And so he's addressing what you might call the Jewish problem, the problem of Jewish unbelief. So in verse 1, in order to convince his readers that he was telling them the truth in what he was about to say, he tells them, I'm telling you the truth, right? And he says it positively, I am speaking the truth. He says it negatively, I am not lying. And he appeals to the testimony of his own conscience and the confirming testimony of the Holy Spirit. You think of how it's a Jewish instinct, right, to call two witnesses, right? That a matter might be established by the testimony of two or more witnesses. And that would have just sort of been ingrained into someone familiar with the Old Testament. So he says, I'm I'm, I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness 
in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit confirmed what my conscience is saying. So he's making every effort to convince his readers that in what he's about to say in these next two verses, he's absolutely telling the truth, lest they question his sincerity in it. Verse 2, we see the verse says that I, so about what is he telling the truth? That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Okay, so the truth was that far from not caring about the salvation of his fellow Jews, Paul experienced great sorrow. So here he's talking about the depth of it and unceasing anguish. So there he's talking about the length of it, right? Deep and never-ending anguish and sorrow in his heart. And as we see in the next verse, from the next verse, we see what it was about. It was about the lostness of his kinsmen according to the flesh, of his fellow Jews. So he experienced great sorrow, unceasing grief over the unbelief of his fellow Jews and its dire consequences, right? The dire consequences are sort of implied here. That they would be accursed, eternally condemned. Verse 3, you see the verse there, For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. So just to emphasize, to drive home how much he cared for his fellow Jews and for their eternal destiny. He declares that if it were possible, and I think he's speaking hypothetically here, he knows that it's not possible, but he's saying if it were possible, it isn't, but if it were, he would accept eternal condemnation for himself. That's what that word, uh, that Greek word means, anathema, is accursed or under God's curse, eternally condemned, if it may, meant that they could be saved for the sake of my brothers. And I, I'm going to use the word salvation here, even though it's not in the text, because that's really what he's talking about here, right? The difference between it being accursed under God's curse and or being eternally condemned, the opposite of that would be to be have eternal life, right? to be forgiven. Um, And as the passage unfolds, it's very clear that he is talking about the salvation of the Jews. In fact, if you go down to verse 27, it says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So, you know, like I said, He doesn't use the word salvation at the beginning, but it's clearly what he's talking about. Um, And this is is what he's saying. He's saying, look, I would be willing, if it were possible, to forfeit my own salvation and suffer eternal condemnation if it would mean that my fellow Jews would be saved for the sake of my brothers. A very, you know, he's starting out here. He's, you can imagine He's wanting his readers to understand that in what he's about to say, he is in no way expressing some kind of flippant disregard for his fellow Jews. No, he has a deep anguish over their unbelief, a desire to see them saved. He would be willing to forfeit his own salvation for theirs, right? So, and he he wants them to know he's saying that sincerely from his heart. So he wants, so he's putting that out there to begin with, to cut off any possible accusation that in what he's about to say and the explanation that he's going to give, that he doesn't really care about his his fellow Jews. He's he's writing them off. No, absolutely not. Okay? But when you see what he says here, you you can see sort of leads you into. The fact that what he's about to say regarding the Jews is very controversial, right? It's not going to be accepted by many. Okay, so any questions about that right there? Okay. Yeah, Ben. Would you say that Paul's, I mean, is he just speaking like hyperbolically or like should we, in a sense, aspire to that kind of anguish over the unbelievers? I mean, I guess I feel like I have a hard time. I pray for unbelievers, but I 
I couldn't honestly say what Paul says there. <laughs> I mean, should I aspire to that, or, or is that what I should be, you know, right. under the influence of the Spirit growing into? Well, I do believe it is somewhat hyperbolic, just in the sense that I think Paul was well aware that it didn't work like that. But I do think that he's sincere in that he seems to, I mean, I don't think he makes very clear that he's telling the truth, right? So I think he sincerely would would be willing to forfeit his own eternal life in order to see his fellow Jews saved. Now, in terms of should we aspire to it, I mean, I guess he would say yes, right? <laughs> like we should aspire to that kind of depth of, of anguish and desire for the lost. And I, I wondered if it's almost in a sense like Jesus, right. though it wasn't eternal. I mean, right. he, he took on the eternal condemnation right. so that we would be saved. So in a sense, it wondered if Paul is being like Christ. Right. Yeah, I, I do think so. Yeah. That's very, very sobering, isn't it? Yeah, we have a long ways to go, right? <laughs> Okay, well, let's move on to Romans 9, 4 through 5. Um, if someone would read these verses, Romans 9, 4 through 5. They are Israelites, who belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. All right, so I think to summarize these verses... The reason for Paul's special concern for his fellow Jews, the reason why it caused him such anguish, was not simply that they were his kin, but was also because of their all the, the privileges that they had been given in redemptive history. All right? And so he's going to enumerate these. In other words, you know, we, we think this way about our children, right? To, to have an unbelieving child one of the things that makes it so much worse is to think of all the privileges that they have grown up. They've grown up hearing the gospel, attending the worship of the saints, you know, having a Bible read to them in the home, having Christian parents seeking to train them in the Lord, and then to forfeit all. It just makes it that much more agonizing, right? And so that's what he's expressing here, I believe, about his fellow Jews, right? Um, first, he says they are Israelites. And I think here, the, the category he's speaking of, and you're going to see this play out in the text, Israelites is code for, or the equivalent of, God's old covenant people. Now, it is something that their physical descent was a factor in it, but not the sole factor, as we're going to see. But as members of the old covenant community... They had been given privileges. And what are these privileges? He says, the adoption. I quote Exodus 4, 22 through 23, because this is where God speaks to Pharaoh. He says to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let my son go, right? And there's a sense in which the old covenant relationship was one of adoption. God adopted the nation of Israel, the, the old covenant as his old covenant people, and they were his his children. You know, he also uses, it was also a marital relationship. He also calls them his bride. You know, it's the same as the church, right? So the adoption, a familial status, it implied loving care that a father has to his children. The glory, we know that that's the, you know, the so-called Shekinah glory, the manifestation of God's presence dwelling in their midst, Right? First in the tabernacle, then in the temple. That was a great privilege. The covenants, and I think here he's talking about the the various covenants that God made with their ancestors in times past, going back to Abraham, but then also the Mosaic covenant, the covenant that God made with them as a nation at Mount Sinai, the Davidic covenant, the giving of the law. The old covenant law itself was a great privilege, wasn't it? Because most people in the world didn't have access to God's to such an extended revelation of God's will, right? They didn't know the truth, what was true and righteous to the extent that Israel had. Now, that also turned out to be 
the means by which they were condemned, right? <laughs> But at the same time, it was also a great privilege that they, out of all the nations, received God's law. And of course, the law, the old covenant law, it defined the uh, terms of their relationship with God. And so it was a very sobering thing. It showed them how to be faithful to God and therefore condemned them when they were not faithful. But it was a great blessing to have that extended revelation of God's character and his will to them, right? So the law, they had, that was a great privilege. Then the worship. And I think that's a reference to the sacrificial system and to the calendar of feasts in which they would gather in Jerusalem throughout the year for various feasts. So the worship, it's centered around God's presence in the, in the tabernacle and then the temple. And it involved both the priesthood and the sacrifices, which was an ongoing part of their worship. And then also the festal days where they would gather for special days of worship. And then finally, the promises. And I think probably they're speaking here of these great unconditional promises that were attached to the Abrahamic covenant. And I use the word unconditional needs to be qualified in some ways, but, but largely, it's not to say that, you know, the Abrahamic promise, for instance, didn't come with any terms on their part. God told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. But it came with promises that God was going to fulfill no matter what, right? Uh, so Abrahamic and Davidic covenants especially contained these kinds of promises, And so all of these things were incredible privileges that they had as God's old covenant people in redemptive history, which made it all that more agonizing that when the Messiah finally came, in whom all the promises would find their ultimate fulfillment, they didn't believe in him and they missed out on the fulfillment of those promises, the ultimate fulfillment. So he also says, Adding to these, to them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So he's saying in terms of, you know, they had this great privilege of, first of all, tracing their ancestry back to the patriarch, which was the reason why they had all these privileges. And that going forward in history, they had the privilege of being the nation out of which the shoot in the stump of Jesse would arise. So the, the Messiah came right in their midst. So this was, an, I mean, these were unfathomable blessings that only a very small number of people in history had. You think when Jesus was born, the vast majority of people in the world didn't even know that it had happened, right? Um, so great privileges. And, and this is what made him so... It's so difficult to see that they rejected their Messiah and did not receive the salvation that the Messiah had. You think of how Jesus expressed this same kind of agony where he said, you know, I tell you, many will come from east and west and sit down at the table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob while you yourselves are excluded from the kingdom, right? It was a, a sobering thing. So, any questions about this panel here? Yeah. It seems significant where it is stating that um, it's speaking of to the flesh is the Christ who is God overall. Are we speaking specifically of Christ and of God? Because that seems somewhat jarring that he is right. now stating that Christ is God and Right. In fact, it goes one level beyond that to say that Christ is God, who is God. So every Over time that I... So that, to me, that is a... Right, it's a very striking statement, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> every time I highlight something here, that means I'm going to deal with it in an interpretive... But I, since you raised it, let's look at that really quick. There is this question, in, and you see it in the different translations as to how to punctuate the phrase, the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. So I'm just quoting it in the ESV translation here. But if you were to look at that same phrase in other translations, you will see that the different translations have put 
the, the periods and commas in different places. They, they've punctuated it differently. Reflecting that, they have made different interpretive decisions about how to interpret the Greek there, right? And it's significant. Uh, I want to show you three main, so there are, you know, eight or nine different ways it could be punctuated, but they kind of funnel down into three major ones. There's this way, which you see in the ESV, the Christ who is God overall, blessed forever. That's also how the New International Version translates it. There's this, which is the New New American Standard Bible, the Christ who is overall, comma, God blessed forever, right? And then there's the old RSV chose to put a period after the Christ. The Christ, period, God who is overall, be blessed forever, amen. As if this section is like a doxology, right? Now, the question is, which is the better interpretation? Honestly, as I was reading through the, um, well, first of all, let's just point this out. If number one is correct, that's important. Why would that be significant? Saying that Christ is God. Because it's taking the, the word for God in Greek, theos, and applying it directly to Christ. It's, it would be one of the few instances in the New Testament where you have this very explicit statement that Christ is God, right? Um, so the question is, is that the right interpretation? And even as I was... Reading through the commentaries, I was realizing there's no way I can put all the exegetical details here in this slide. But I want to just quote from you from one of the the best commentaries in my mind on Romans, written by evangelical scholar Doug Moo. He says, arguments in favor of taking God as an appellation of Messiah. In other words, as taking God, what do you call it? A title of the Messiah, Christ, who is God. Arguments in favor of taking God as an appellation of Messiah greatly outweigh those that support the alternative. In other words, if you're just going on the exegetical arguments, number one is, in his mind, by far and away the best option. But why would people choose the other options? (laughs) Usually it's because they the commentators just simply do not think that Paul would explicitly call Jesus God, even though there are other texts where it more clearly is, does happen. Or they think, at least in this context, where he's appealing to Jews, right? That he certainly wouldn't, you know, ruffle their feathers even more by calling Jesus God. Now, how... I'm not convinced by either of those types of things. I think, you know, you're going to have some commentators who are just biased against the idea that Jesus is called God in the New Testament. So every time it appears to be that way, they'll find a way of interpreting that away. And I don't think that, I mean, here he's talking to Jewish Christians. So the deity of Jesus, in my mind, doesn't seem like it would be a concern. Paul never seemed to be one cared about ruffling. Right, (laughs) right, right. So it seems to me that number one is actually the best way to translate it, interpret it. And by the way, the fact that the NASB translates it differently doesn't mean that they, you know, we don't make the mistake, see, they're biased against the idea that Jesus is God. No, it's just in this particular context, they thought the Greek would be translated better the other way. Uh, but to me, number one is probably preferable exegetically, and so it would be an example of Paul just explicitly saying that Christ is God, which I think is is very striking in and of itself, but not without controversy. So sometimes you throw up your hands and you say, well, who can tell? You know, there's so many people that disagree on this one, so we can never really know. A lot of times there are disagreement. But the reason for the disagreement, the massive amount of disagreement and things written is not because the text isn't clear, but because people don't like what the text says, right? And so a lot of disagreement is not necessarily an an indication that the text isn't clear. All right. Any question on that? All right. So we settle it. Christ is God. 
Okay, let's Romans nine six through nine. If someone would read the text there, it's on the screen. You can read it from your Bible. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But though Isaac shall through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise is counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. Okay. Man, this is like explosive stuff to say. But I just want to sort of soften the blow by saying this is not anything really new in the New Testament. Like, well... Like I said, Jesus himself told his fellow Jews, right, that he had seen the extraordinary faith of the Gentile man who said, hey, you know, you don't need to come. I'm a man of authority. I know about what that means. You have enough authority, just pronounce it. And Jesus said, I haven't seen this amount of faith in Israel, right? And then he went on to say, you know, many I say to you, many will sit down in the kingdom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I think he's talking about Gentiles like this, I think it was a centurion or something like that. While many of you will be excluded. A very striking statement, right? In the book of Revelation, in the letters to the seven churches, Jesus comforts the Christians in these churches by talking about their enemies. Who who were the persecutors of the church in the first stages? Not so much the Romans, but the Jew, their fellow Jews. And he says, I know about these guys. He says, they say they are Jews, but they are not. Right? They are um, a synagogue of Satan. Wow. Right? So, and, and that really shouldn't have been all that surprising when you think about the Old Testament too, where in the community there were people who were clearly going to hell. Right? You can think of some on your, on your hands, right? Uh, an Ahab, for instance. And then there are others in the covenant community that were true believers, like an Elisha. So I, I, I softened the blow a little bit here by saying, I don't think this is like, Paul isn't totally out in left field here, right? Obviously, this is inspired scripture, so what he says is true, but I'm saying this is a, a biblical con- concept that he's talking about that's not just here. I think his argument here is this, though Paul grieves over it, Israel's unbelief, right? And when I say Israel, I mean his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, the unbelief of his fellow Jews does not mean that God failed to keep his word because his promise was never given to all of Abraham's physical descendants. That's his argument. It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. Wow. So the first part of verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. It's interesting, the word of God here, I'm going to show, I think, is a reference to the scripture more broadly. But when he says the word of God It's not as though the word of God has failed. It sort of indicates that he's zeroing in on the promises contained in the Old Testament scripture. As if those promises would potentially be proven false. He says, no, it's not as if the promises in the Old Testament scripture have failed, have proven untrue. It's not as though that's happened. And then verses 6b through 7a For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. What's he saying? He's saying the promises were given to Abraham's descendants. That's true, right? To Abraham and his seed. And Abraham's descendants is Israel, right? But this category, both Abraham's seed or offspring, and Israel never included all of his physical descendants. These categories of Abraham's offspring and Israel never included all physical descendants of Abraham or all who 
physically descended from Israel. That's what he's saying. Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And you say, how could that be true? Well, very easily. Because he quotes here. He quotes from the Old Testament scriptures to establish it. He says, remember what they say. Genesis 21, 12. Through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. Now, if you understand that he's making a contrast here between Isaac and who? Ishmael. Ishmael. Both were physical descendants of Abraham, right? Both were his physical offspring. But notice, he says, through Isaac, your offspring shall be named. So he's saying you have physical offspring that include Isaac and Ishmael. But with respect to the offspring to whom the promise belonged, only one of those will be called your offspring. And who is it? Isaac, right? So in Genesis 21, 12, only Isaac's descendants, not Ishmael's, were going to be called offspring, named offspring of Abraham. And why was that an important title, to be the offspring of Abraham? It's implied here, but not stated. What's that? Yeah, because the, the offspring of Abraham were the ones to whom the promises were given, right? That's very clear. Ishmael was a physical offspring of Abraham, but he was not the offspring to whom the promises would be given. And that's like simple stuff from the Old Testament, right? It's just something that you may think, yeah, but I just didn't think about how there's offspring and then there's offspring, right? But that's what he's saying. Verses 8 and 9. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Counted. That's a word he used earlier in the book. It means to reckon, right? to consider. He's saying, it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. So here again, he quotes from an Old Testament scripture to back it up. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So you see what he's saying? He's saying, so Abraham's offspring are not all his physical offspring, children of the flesh, but those to whom God gave his promise, children of the promise. And he quotes Isaiah, Genesis 18.10 to back it up. By the way, do any of you guys remember the context of Genesis 18? Like, why was God saying this about this time next year? I will return and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah doubted possible. Yeah, so they're old. They don't have any children. So what had they assumed? What happened? That their existing son, Ishmael, which is not Sarah's, but Abraham's through Hagar, would be the heir. And God says, no, next year. Sarah's going to have a son. He, he's the one. Paul here is using that text to back up his statement that, look, when it comes to the offspring who had received the promises, it's not just the physical descendants of Abraham, but it's the one to whom the promise was given, the children of the promise, not the children of the flesh. Right? So, very simple observations from Old Testament text to make a very controversial and profound point. The offspring of Abraham is not every single physical descendant. But when you start thinking about the history of Abraham, you think, yeah, actually that's got to be true, right? Because Abraham had lots of wives and lots of different children, but there was only, but not all of them received the promise, right? That also goes against a popular thing that's been spreading is that everybody's been forgiven of all their sins and that will not have to face the judgment Right. Right. You know, that because it says that Christ paid for for the sins of the world and taking it wrong, but this also explains that that can't be true. Yeah, Paul's not a universalist, let's put it that way. Yeah. 
So, in this argument that Paul's making, is it to be applied each generation that God selects in each generation so that there is a physical connection remains in the promise? Or is it making the argument like just to, to remove the idea of that physical generational being a component of the actual salvation that we have? Well, it's a tricky question. The physical component is not irrelevant, is it? Otherwise, what he had just said in verses 4 and 5 about all the privileges that his kinsmen according to the flesh had been given would be irrelevant, right? Those, pri- those privileges wouldn't be given to them based upon them being his kinsmen according to the flesh. If physical lineage was totally insignificant. So no, physical lineage was was important when it came to the Old Covenant. On the eighth day, they'd be circumcised, right? And that came with all kinds of privileges. But he's making a distinction here between just the children of the flesh, those the phys- all the physical descendants of both Israel, because he says not all who are descended from Israel, and Abraham, not all who are children of Abraham by the f- according to the flesh, are belong to the offspring of Abraham who would, to whom the promise would be long. And in the context, as it unfolds, you see that the, and, and this goes back to Romans chapter 4, where he talks about the promise being fulfilled in Christ and in the righteousness that he gives. So this is where like some commentators, when they come to this text, are going to make a distinction between spiritual offspring and physical offspring because it does get tricky. Like the physical offspring of Israel, for instance, have all these privileges. He just said that. But not the ultimate fulfillment, not the gospel promise of salvation. That was something that was not given to just physical descendants. It was given to, and that's what he's going to unfold here, those whom God had chosen to give his promise. So he's making the argument here that when you look at Abraham's descendants, going back to Abraham, before the nation of Israel was even in existence, not all of Abraham's descendants uh, were part of, received the promise that he had given to Abraham. So looking through, say, even just like through the kings, when you have a bad king, is it like when we look at it like they were not part of the promise, but then their descendant who was a good king was grafted in back and like look at it that way? Or right. if they have to maintain the physical lineage, like is it there a grafting that we consider that way? Because obviously there's a cutoff at some point because not all those kings right. are saved. Well, I think a better way of saying it is what he's going to unpack later on in the chapters, Romans 9 through 11, is that you have the covenant, old covenant community full of physical descendants, but then you have a remnant within that truly believe and are saved and receive salvation. So you always had a remnant both within Israel. Remember Elijah said, I'm the only one left, Lord, that worships you. And God said, no, I preserved 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, a remnant within. The grafting in comes later, right? As a sort of new covenant Mystery previously hidden now revealed that he's grafting the Gentiles in as well. Now, there were some Gentiles who became part of the Old Covenant community and also were believers, like a Ruth um, and a Rahab. But the grafting in language in Romans 9 through 11 actually speaks of the Gentiles being grafted in to the church, to the New Covenant community, if that makes sense. Is that scratching where you're itching? Or? Well, it's just like... If there's a physical, if we're still tracking the physical lineages, like if you have an apostate in within Israel, obviously it's not part of that promise. Then how do their children continue on in the promise? It seems like it causes a break. But you see, like sometimes you'll have a good king after a bad king. Like there's a physical related there. So like, how does that descend down? Yeah. So like the the physical is not like I said. The physical aspect of it is not irrelevant. The physical aspect is how the nation was preserved, right? How the line of kings was determined, 
how the Messiah ended up coming through the physical descent of generation after generation of Abraham's descent. But within that, that's, that didn't determine whether they received the promised blessing given to Abraham. He's saying there was a remnant chosen by grace. And he's going to say, how, did, how was that determined? Who would? And he's going to argue here, it was by God's sovereign choice. So a very, very interesting, wow. Okay. Move to Romans 9, 10 through 13. So the last section, if someone would read that. And not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had not, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who called. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Okay. So here is how I'm going to summarize these verses. Rebecca's twin sons, Jacob and Esau, provide even more compelling evidence that Abraham's offspring are determined by God's choice, not simply physical descent. So this is something that was implied previously. But, you know, okay, why was the promise given to Isaac and not Ishmael? Because God said, through Isaac, your descendants. So there's a divine choice implied there. They were both physical descendants, but God chose Isaac. But you could argue that, well, that makes sense, though, because Isaac was his child through Sarah, whereas Ishmael was his child through Hagar, his servant. And so maybe that's not as good evidence as that it depends upon God's choice as we would like. You know, there's still physical descent involved here, right? Because different, same dads, but different moms. But that's why he adds in another example. And not only so, here's another more compelling example. If some would object that Isaac received the promise because he was born to Jacob through Sarah, not Hagar, this objection is removed with Esau and Jacob, who were both born to Isaac through Rebekah. So same mom and same dad. In fact, they were twins, right? So when you come to verse 10, not only so, but also when Rebecca had conceived children by one man, so one woman, one man, our forefather Isaac, and you come to verses 11 and 12, look first at the verses. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. So first of all, what's he saying here? He's saying, even though Jacob and Esau had the exact same physical qualifications, and they were twin sons of Isaac through Rebekah. So there's no issue of uh, an Egyptian servant here. There's no issue of Isaac and, or of when Abraham and Sarah concocting their own plan here. No, this is... Isaac, it's his one wife, two sons, twin sons. Yet we see that God chose one of them, Jacob, to receive the promise and not Esau. That's obvious, right? You read the biblical account, it's true. We don't really talk about Esau's descendants as having anything to do with the promises, the covenant, the worship, the Messiah, right? They're out. God chose the promise to be given to Jacob and his descendants. And in fact, that the choice of Jacob over Esau, according to Genesis 25, 23, was made before they were even born. Right? And he quotes, he's going to quote here, Genesis 25, 23, where God said to Rebekah, while the twins were still in her womb, she's going, what is happening in there? They're warring with each other. He says, the older Esau will serve the younger. And that little phrase, before they were born, Paul points out that indicated that God had chosen Jacob to receive the promise, even though he was younger, rather than Esau. So the choice was made before they were born, before they had done anything good or bad. So in other words, we've already eliminated physical descent from the picture. The choice wasn't made on the basis of different physical lineage, 
Nor was the choice made on God looking at their life and saying, well, Jacob was more worthy than Esau. That not only when you read the accounts, you realize that was not true, but also you realize that the choice was made before they were born and before they'd done anything good or bad. So the, the promise was given to one and not the other according to God's purpose of election. Election just means his choice so that his purpose of election might continue and that the choice would not be made because of works, but because of him who calls. All right. And then to back it up, he cites another passage from Malachi 1, 2 through 3, which is from much later in redemptive history when Israel is questioning God's love. And they're saying to God, how have you loved us? And he said, are you kidding me? Look at Edom. Esau's descendants. Look at how I've treated you compared to them. Them, I've judged them without mercy. They try to rise up. It's not going to work. But you, I've set my love upon you, right? I've given you my covenant. And he says, Jacob, I loved, but Esau, I hated. So that verse is being brought in to show that Jacob's descendants inherited the promise It was through Jacob that the promise was given and to his offspring, not Esau, because it was God's choice. God didn't owe it to either Jacob or Esau, but he chose to give it to Jacob. And all of this shows that the promise would be given not on the basis of anything in us, but according to God's election. I did want to address this. The context of Malachi 1, 2 through 3, I would encourage you to to read that. But let me just say in the context, Israel was questioning God's love for them. God was attesting his love for them. So he compared his treatment of them to his treatment of Edom, the descendants of Isaac through Esau. When he said, yet I have loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau in verses 2 through 3. He's saying that while he chose Jacob and his descendants to be his covenant people and to be the objects of his covenant love, He'd rejected Esau and his descendants, and he judged them without mercy. So, to clear anything up, hated here refers in this context not to a sinful emotion like we would attribute to ourselves when we say, I hate someone. Say, you shouldn't hate someone. But remember, Jesus himself said, whoever does not hate father and mother, sister and brother. So, it doesn't always refer to a sinful emotion here in the context, it clearly refers to a, a choice to judge instead of to show mercy. Right? Jacob, I loved. I showed him mercy, gave him my covenant love. Esau, I hated. I did not show him mercy. I instead judged him. But in no situation are we talking about injustice or sinful emotion. To one, he gives just judgment. To the other, he gives undeserved mercy, covenant love. Jacob, I loved. Esau, I hated. But again, it just confirms the principle of election. When you look through redemptive history and you say, well, how how was the choice made that Jacob would receive the promise and not Esau and Isaac and not Ishmael? Paul's saying it was as a result of God's purpose of election, his choice, not on the basis of works, not on the basis of just mere physical descent. And that explains why even today he's saying so many Jews, physical descendants, don't believe and haven't received salvation. Because it's never been that all of the physical descendants of Israel or of Abraham received the promises. It was some who were chosen by God. Does that make sense? I did want to just say this very quickly. Some people have argued that what Paul's talking about in these verses, when he talks about Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, especially when you look at that passage in Malachi, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, he's clearly talking about two nations there. Some people have said, see, Paul's not even talking about personal salvation in this text. So election in this text isn't about personal salvation. It's just about choosing certain groups of people to have certain roles in history, right? The problem is, is that's clearly a mistake. Yes, he does talk about groups of people, 
It's not just Jacob and Esau, it's their descendants as well. But, and he uses that to demonstrate the principle of election. But his whole point is to explain why so many Jews, individual Jews, had not believed in Christ and received salvation, right? He talks about, I would be willing to be cursed for their sake if they could be saved. And when you go into the passage and you go all the way to the end, you see he's clearly talking about the salvation of individual Jews. In verse 27, he says, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. There's the language of salvation. Verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. And then chapter 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. So yes, he does talk about groups of people, but his election is not simply at a group level. The whole point is to explain why some Jews are saved through faith in Christ and receive righteousness through him, and some are not. And he's saying the reason is because being a physical descendant doesn't save you. That God chooses some, has always chosen some physical descendants and not others to be saved. So the explanation of Jewish unbelief is God's purpose of election. That salvation is given to those whom God chooses, not on the basis of works or physical descent. Okay? Applications here, and then please come and talk with me after. First, we can trust that the promises of Scripture will not prove untrue, because that's really one of his main thrusts here is to say, look, the Scripture is not proven untrue, simply because so many Jews don't believe. Second, we recognize that the issue of who is saved and who is not is ultimately the result of God's choice. You say, that's unfair. Wait till next week, because he's going to specifically answer that in the next section, right? We should not think that God chooses some for salvation and not others based on anything he sees in them, whether good or bad. He answered that explicitly, right? Not because of works. The choice was made before they were, had, any, had done either good or bad, right? It's, it's emphatic. It's not like he looks down and says, oh yeah, he's going to be good, so I'll choose him. Oh, he chooses them before that. We must accept that God doesn't owe any sinner salvation, but can choose to give it to whomever he will while choosing not to give it to others. So remember, the category of people we're talking about are not innocent people. It's a whole group of people that deserve judgment. So God can give them judgment or he can give them mercy, but he doesn't owe mercy to anyone. He could give them all judgment if he desired. So giving mercy to some is not unfair. It's mercy, right? Fair would be judgment. This reminds us that salvation is a gracious gift for which we must give glory, all glory to God. And then finally, we should be humbled by the realization that we didn't deserve our salvation in any way. That God didn't look down the corridors of time in our life and say, there's someone that I want. Look at their life. In fact, we know ourselves well enough to know that quite the opposite is true, right? Paul himself, he said, I was a violent aggressor and a blasphemer. And he chose me to be a trophy of his grace. Okay, let's pray together. Father, thank you for our text this morning, as challenging as it is to us. Lord, If there's anything that I've said that has not been faithful to what your scripture means, Lord, please let it fall to the ground. Please give people discernment in their hearts to understand. But Lord, to the degree that we have accurately interpreted your word this morning, we pray for the grace to understand and accept it as true and that it would have the intended effect upon us, the effect that you intend it to have. Humble us, give us a sense that our salvation is all of you that was never owed to us, but you chose to give it to us out of grace. 
that we are those who have received your mercy, not justice, and that justice fell on Christ instead. We thank you. We praise you. Give us hearts like Paul's regarding unbelievers around us, that this would not make us smug, but that we would have a deep anguish and desire to see the lost saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.